0: Crime Happens contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Happens, where we uncover the evil that surrounds us. I'm your host, Chris. Aloha. Before I get started, I need to forewarn you. This was recorded in the beautiful state of Hawaii. Since I don't have a professional studio or a studio at all, you will hear the Hawaii state bird in the background. What bird is that? Chickens. Actually, what you will hear are the roosters crowing. Chickens and roosters run wild on all the islands. The roosters crow 24-7. There's not much I can do about it, so mahalo in advance for your understanding. With that said, surf's up, let's get going. During the summer of 2020, I had my purse stolen from me in a Costco parking lot. I made the mistake of leaving my purse in that little section up front in the cart where you might put a kid. I pushed the cart up to my trunk so I could unload my purchases into the car. While I was busy unloading my stuff, Two men pulled up to me in their car, getting so close I was almost pinned in. When I first noticed them pulling up so close, I thought they were going to ask me a question. Then, within seconds, I saw his eyes go to my purse in the cart. Then my eyes went to my purse. We both reached out to grab it, but I was too slow. The guy on the passenger side had leaned all the way out of his window, bending at the waist, and snatched my purse. Right out of my cart, the two guys sped off through the parking lot with me running behind them. As you can imagine, they literally made out like bandits. They got my credit cards, insurance cards, cash, driver's license, keys to my car and house, and sentimental items. Before I could even get home, these guys had already tried to use my credit cards at stores like Target and Best Buy. Some of the purchases actually went through, some didn't. Fortunately, I wasn't held responsible for the approved charges. I did end up having to change the locks on my house, my car, and go through the painful process of getting my credit cards and other cards replaced. I grieved for the personal sentimental items that they took that I can never replace. In addition to that, I had to deal with the fear that these guys now knew where I lived. I have been shopping at this Costco for 20 years. I've never felt unsafe in any way, shape, or form. It was broad daylight around noon, and the parking lot was busy as usual. It just never occurred to me that I would be targeted by thieves here. As the days went by after having my purse stolen, it was hard not to replay the incident over and over in my mind. Intellectually, I knew I shouldn't blame myself. But I blamed myself anyway. I was mad, I was embarrassed, I was scared. Why did I leave my purse in the cart? Why did I have so much important stuff in my purse and wallet? How can someone who publishes a true crime podcast be such an easy victim of crime? Apparently, what I found out afterwards is that this is a very common crime These people, both men and women, work the parking lots of all kinds of major stores including Costco, Trader Joe's, and shopping malls. The people who do this are very practiced, very brazen, and rarely caught. Outside, these people cruise the parking lot as though they're looking for a parking spot, like everyone else at Costco. But they are actually looking for people like me who leave their purses in carts, or slung loosely over their shoulder. Inside, they wait for you to be distracted so they can easily walk by your cart and slip your wallet right out of your purse. Or they may work in pairs with one distracting you and one stealing your purse or wallet. The reason I bring this up is that I do want to warn you to be aware of your surroundings. I also think it's relevant to the subject of this episode. John. Edward Robinson. Robinson is a lot like these purse thieves except that his methods for stealing are much more elaborate and sophisticated. But he's still just a common thief, a flim-flam man, a con artist, and a master manipulator with the ultimate goal of stealing money or exploiting his victims or both. Just like the parking lot thieves, he preyed on people who were trusting, naive, vulnerable, and or desperate. John Edward Robinson used every means at his disposal to get what he wanted. In the early years, he used the want ads, typewriters, fraud, forged letters and documents, and just good old-fashioned lying. He was an expert liar. He managed to fool doctors, businessmen, parole officers, and just about anyone else he came into contact with. When he discovered the internet, it became his best tool. He could make money and satisfy his sexual desires at the same time in some cases. Robinson would frequent BDSM chat rooms and use multiple email accounts to disguise his identity. He used a number of aliases. He would create online postings with the promise of financial gain, employment, or travel in order to attract victims into his world of sadomasochism and sexual torture. He would lure his victims with whatever it was that they needed or wanted. BDSM represents bondage, discipline, dominance, and submission and sadomasochism. The women in these BDSM chat rooms that were targeted by Robinson were women looking for a meaningful relationship in the world of BDSM. But they also needed employment, and if that meant travel too, then it was a bonus. Robinson had a gift for uncovering a person's weaknesses, desires, and needs. He exploited these women sexually and or financially, and used similar methods to murder and then dispose of their bodies. It seems the hammer was his preferred weapon of choice. He used deception to conceal his crimes including phony letters and emails to victims' friends and family members. John Edward Robinson stole an unknown amount of money from people and businesses over a 40-year period. He also murdered eight women. Three of his murder victims were never found. This is the story of the first known internet serial killer, John Edward Robinson. Robinson. John Edward Robinson was a lifelong career criminal. He worked exceptionally hard to steal money instead of earning money. He started out with theft, fraud, embezzlement, and graduated to murder. John Edward Robinson was born December 27th, 1943 in Cicero, Illinois. His father was an alcoholic and his mother was the disciplinarian. The Robinsons lived in a simple home and were such quiet neighbors that nobody even remembers them. His father was a machinist for Western Electric, but he was also an alcoholic who would also go on occasional binges. These binges were extremely disruptive to the family. His mother, Alberta, was the disciplinarian and apparently she was terribly strict. Did this have anything to do with his BDSM fantasies? Just a thought. Robinson joined the Boy Scouts, and by the time he was 13, he had become an Eagle Scout and a senior patrol leader. As part of the Boy Scouts, Robinson made a trip to London with a group of 120 other scouts. On this trip, the scouts sang a song for Queen Elizabeth, who was newly crowned. Judy Garland was one of the celebrities attending the festivities, and when Robinson spotted her, he approached her and shook her hand. She, in turn, gave him a peck on the cheek. At about this same time period, Robinson was also accepted to a seminary school for boys who were interested in becoming a priest. He actually graduated from the seminary school at the age of 17, although he never did pursue a career with the church and did not become a priest. In 1961, he attended a local junior college and trained to be an x-ray technician. Robinson didn't finish his training. But he didn't let that stop him. In 1964, at the age of 21, he managed to get a job at Chicago Hospital in their x-ray department. He provided letters of recommendation, which of course were forged, just like the diplomas he proudly hung on the wall of his office. That same year, Robinson met Nancy Jo Lynch. It wasn't long before Nancy got pregnant, and this prompted them to get married they decided to have a nice Catholic wedding ceremony. Up to this point, Robinson had managed to stay out of trouble with law enforcement, but that was about to change. With a new wife and baby on the way, Robinson needed to make a lot more money in order to support his new family. Instead of trying to get a job that paid more or trying to get more hours at work, Robinson decided to steal money from his current employer, Chicago Hospital. When the hospital accused Robinson of stealing money, he pleaded for another chance. He said if they wouldn't press charges, he would pay everything back. The hospital actually agreed to this and he wasn't charged. Unbelievable. After this incident, Robinson moved his family to Kansas City, Missouri. It was here that they settled down and had three more children. Despite being married with a growing family, Robinson was known to cheat on his wife and to have more than one girlfriend. After moving his family to Missouri, Robinson kept on moving. In fact, he moved back and forth between the states of Kansas and Missouri and the cities within those states easily and often. Missouri and Kansas are separated by the Missouri River, with Kansas on the west side and Missouri on the east. In Kansas, the cities of Olathe, Lenexa, and Overland Park are right across the Missouri River and within a 20-mile radius of Liberty, Raytown, and Kansas City, which are cities in Missouri. These were the stomping grounds of Robinson. He lived, worked, and operated in these cities. Businesses would often move to Missouri from Kansas to get a tax break, and this had been the basis for a border war that had been going on for quite some time I don't know if Robinson was doing this since he never seemed to have a real job and probably didn't file taxes anyway, but he was definitely jumping the state line to make it more difficult for authorities to keep track of him. It wasn't just state lines, but city limits as well. Before the internet, it would have been incredibly difficult to track all of his criminal activity. Police departments had to literally compare notes or pick up the telephone to talk with somebody. There was no central database, no email, no texting, no cell phones. These didn't come onto the scene until the latter half of Robinson's career. Missouri is known for being the last existing stagecoach stop on the Santa Fe Trail. It is also known for the musical style of ragtime, Kansas City Jazz, and St. Louis Blues, which were developed in Missouri. The well-known Kansas City-style barbecue and lesser-known St. Louis style barbecue can be found across the state and beyond. And Missouri is also a major center of beer brewing, with Anheuser-Busch being the world's largest producer. Kansas is nicknamed the Sunflower State, but it's also known as the Jayhawk State, the Midway State, and the Wheat State. The plains and prairies of Kansas are known as the breadbasket of the country, growing more wheat than any other state. Unfortunately, the state of Kansas has so many tornadoes, it has also earned the nickname of Tornado Alley. It's also the home of Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz, and the state song of Kansas is Home on the Range. This all sounds so incongruent to the life and criminal acts of John Edward Robinson. Back in the late 60s and early 70s, Robinson's criminal career was just getting started. TWA was one of the biggest employers in the area, but Kansas City International Airport in Kansas City, Missouri, didn't exist yet. There were no skyscrapers, and construction for the new football stadium was only just beginning. The first Safeway store was just built, but public transportation was almost non-existent. In 1970, the Kansas City Chiefs won their first Super Bowl against the Minnesota Vikings. This was the catalyst that the area needed to really start growing and developing. Kansas City sits on Missouri's western edge, straddling the border with Kansas. It's known for its barbecue, jazz heritage, and fountains. Downtown, the American Jazz Museum shares a building with the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in the historic 18th and Vine Jazz District. Liberty is a city in Clay County and Raytown is a city in Jackson County. Both cities are suburbs of Kansas City, Missouri. Raytown began as a Santa Fe Trail stop just 8 miles south of Independence, Missouri and is probably the second oldest town in Jackson County. Overland Park, Olathe, and Lenexa are each located in Johnson County, Kansas. In the 60s and 70s, major development began including residential subdivisions and several shopping malls. In the 1980s, the boom in commercial and residential development contributed to the significant increase in the area's population. In the state of Kansas, Overland Park is the second most populated city, Olathe is the fourth most populated city, and Lenexa is the eighth most populated city. Lenexa is also the birthplace of Garmin, which produces the navigational devices for automobiles, among other types of technology. It's bordered by the cities of Overland Park to the east and Olathe to the south. After being fired from Chicago Hospital and moving his family to Kansas City, Missouri, Robinson went on to get another job in another hospital. Children's Mercy Hospital in Overland Park hired him as an x-ray technician in the Pediatric Department and General Hospital in Kansas City hired him as an x-ray technician for adults. He told them he needed a night job while he was in medical school to become a doctor. He came prepared with his fake letters of recommendation, fake diplomas, and other fake certificates stating that he was trained as a medical lab technician. He knew the lingo for this type of work and came across as knowledgeable and competent. His co-workers thought he was a nice guy in the beginning. After they saw him in action, their opinion of him changed dramatically. They noticed that he didn't seem competent at all. It never occurred to them that he would have lied about his qualifications. It never occurred to them that the documents, diplomas, and certificates he displayed on his walls were all forged. This was serious work and not something that someone would lie about. Wrong. Robinson lied very easily about his training and experience. If he needed a new qualification or degree, no problem. He would just grab a blank certificate or document and fill in whatever he needed. When Robinson wasn't working at the hospital, he was busy hitting on his female co-workers or exploring the Kansas City nightlife. When he was out on the town, He liked to frequent a place called the Jewel Box, a club that featured male transvestites, or femme mimics, as they were called. It was sandwiched between the Cat Baloo and the Yum Yum Club. The Jewel Box survived bans on cross-dressing and police raids on gay bars, which were part of the local and national effort to crack down on what was considered the homophile problem during the 1950s and 60s. Robinson also had a keen interest in violent sex and was beginning to explore that aspect of his life in more depth. Fortunately, Children's Hospital did eventually notice Robinson's incompetence and his inappropriate behavior towards his female co-workers and fired him. Robinson wasn't the least bit deterred at getting fired and in 1966 began looking for another job in the medical field. Next, he was hired by Fountain Plaza X-Ray as a lab technician. This business was actually owned by President Harry Truman's former personal physician, Dr. Wallace Graham. Obviously, Robinson had the gift of gab and could put others at ease. This along with his forged credentials, diplomas, and certificates, he was back in business. Once again, he proudly displayed his fake credentials on his office wall. but. Robinson just couldn't help himself and he began hitting on the female staff and actually engaged in sexual encounters with both staff members and patients. Robinson also confided to Dr. Graham's 15-year-old son that he led a double life and shared stories of his sexual liaisons with the teenager. He also told Graham's son that he liked to go to a club that male transvestites went to. He was most likely referring to the jewel box. Within six months of being hired, Robinson had made a huge dent in the business bank account. By the end of 1966, Dr. Graham's business was losing a lot of money, and they were in dire straits. At the same time, complaints regarding Robinson's incompetence were starting to surface, and a co-worker reported that he was stealing money from Fountain Plaza X-Ray. He did this by using a signature stamp on business checks and he would also ask patients to pay him personally in cash. In the end, it was determined that Robinson had stolen somewhere between 100 dollars and $300,000 from the business. Dr. Graham confronted Robinson and accused him of theft. Robinson tried to talk his way out of it, saying he was not stealing, just moving money around. Dr. Graham didn't believe him for a minute and called the Kansas police. In 1969, at the age of 25, Robinson was arrested and charged with embezzling 33000 from Dr. Graham's practice. This is only a small fraction of the money believed to have been stolen. He was convicted of theft, but unbelievably, once again, he didn't serve any jail time and was let off with only three years of probation. His wife knew about his legal issues, but she didn't hesitate to help him out by providing a character reference. She would tell the court, on more than one occasion, what a great husband, father, and provider Robinson was. While he was on probation, he got a job as a manager in a television rental company. He immediately began to steal merchandise. Instead of calling the police, Robinson was fired. The police were not called. No charges were filed. No big deal. He is right back out there looking for another job. Robinson is quickly learning that there are very few negative consequences to his criminal activities. In 1970 at the age of 26, he was arrested for stealing 6200 stamps from Mobile Oil Corp, his employer at the time. These were reward stamps with a monetary value and could be used to purchase products. SNH Green Stamps was another popular stamp program at the time. He made a deal with the court to pay restitution and the charge was dropped to a misdemeanor. It was 1971 and Robinson moved his family back to Chicago so he could accept a job selling insurance for the R.B. Jones Company. But Robinson was also looking for a shortcut and, as usual, began stealing again. He was caught embezzling $5,500 from his new employer. In court, he was let off the hook and the case was dropped after he agreed to pay restitution. Although the case was dropped, the Jackson County Court was contacted and ordered Robinson back to Kansas, where the judge extended his three-year probation. This was his probation for his embezzlement conviction in Dr. Graham's business, Fountain Plaza X-ray. During this time frame, Robinson and his wife have two more children, fraternal twins, and they moved to a bigger house in Raytown, Missouri, On the heels of his latest embezzlement conviction and the birth of his new twins, Robinson, at the age of 26, decides to start his own medical consulting business called Professional Services Association, also known as PSA. Robinson began to get his new business up and running. As he was doing this, he also violated his parole. He was actually arrested and sent to jail. A first! His probation officer at the time could clearly see that Robinson was a chronic repeat offender and felt very strongly that he needed to spend some time behind bars and made this recommendation. Despite the recommendation by his parole officer, he was released after only a few weeks. These few weeks in jail did absolutely nothing to deter him from his illegal activities. After his release from jail, Robinson was right back at it with an all-new scam. This new scam of his was designed to steal $30,000 from a retired school teacher. It's so hard to understand how he was able to continually lie, cheat, steal, scam, and defraud without spending any time in prison. How lucky can one guy be? According to John Douglas in the book, Anyone You Want Me To Be, Criminals like Robinson can't be rehabilitated. He can't be motivated to change. He can't be taught to feel empathy. And his greed can't be cured. He will learn how to convince psychologists and other officials that he is rehabilitated. And he will spend all his effort perfecting his skills in order to be a better criminal. Every time he gets let off the hook, He becomes more brazen and more confident. In the early 1970s at the offices of Professional Services Association, Robinson asked his secretary to type up some letters and send them to prospective clients. The letters claimed he had received from the Board of Regents of the University of Kansas City the full rights and privileges of professor at the School of Dentistry. He also forged the signature of the dental school's dean. Nothing actually came of this scam, but he keeps trying. During this time frame, Robinson was hired by the University of Kansas Medical Center as a business consultant for its family practice department. He was well-dressed, was well-spoken, and had an easygoing, competent manner, and this put everyone at ease. The department chair was so impressed, he hired Robinson. As usual, Robinson began to steal from his employers right away. The doctors he worked for in the orthopedic surgery department were so concerned over his mishandling of their money that they filed a complaint. Apparently, they became very suspicious when he requested the corporation's checkbook. Only a few months into this job and he was fired for suspicion of theft. Next, Robinson embarks on yet another scam. This time, he's trying to get people to invest in his company, Professional Services Association. He went to John Hartleen, the executive director of Marion Laboratories, a big pharmaceutical company, and made his investment pitch. Hartleen wasn't interested. After being rejected by Hartleen, Robinson doesn't get discouraged. Instead, Robinson fakes a letter to himself from Marion Laboratories, which states that they want to acquire his new company. He even forged the director's signature. He sent the letter out to potential investors, including the founder of Marion Laboratories, Ewing M. Kaufman. Kaufman was the owner of the Kansas City Royals baseball team at the time of this event. Kaufman read the letter and knew John Hartlein, the executive director, so he figured it was legit and invested $2,500. After he made this initial investment, he decided to call Hartlein and all hell broke loose. They realized they were being scammed and contacted the Securities Exchange Commission, and they investigated Robinson and his business, Professional Services Association, or PSA. On December 10, 1975, at the age of 31, the case finally made its way to the federal grand jury in Missouri. Robinson was indicted for securities fraud, mail fraud, and four charges of false representation of his company PSA. On May 24th, 1976 at the age of 32, Robinson pleads guilty to the charges of interstate securities fraud. He was fined $2,500 and his probation was extended by three more years. Because he pled no contest, he didn't even have to repay any of the money he stole from investors. So once again, escapes a jail or prison sentence. Nobody knows for sure how Robinson made all his money. He was fired from every job he held for embezzlement and in most cases he was ordered to repay the money he stole. Some have speculated that he didn't pay back all the money like he was supposed to. Instead, they think he stashed a great deal of it away. It is also believed that Robinson had victims that did not come forward out of embarrassment. They didn't want anyone to know that they had been conned or swindled. I know the feeling because people would ask me where my purse was when I got robbed at Costco as though it were somehow my fault, and it made me feel foolish. Robinson moved back to Kansas and was living in a town called Stanley. They were living in an upscale neighborhood in an area known as Pleasant Valley Farms. Somehow, Robinson managed to purchase a nine-room home on three acres of for $125,000. It was a ranch-style home and the property had several elm and maple groves, a horse stable, a corral, a riding path, and a pond filled with fish. Over the next few years, Robinson became a scoutmaster, coached a t-ball team, refereed school volleyball games, bought two horses, and became a Sunday school teacher at a local Presbyterian church even though he was Catholic and he dressed up like Santa for the neighborhood children. He was doing everything he could to fit in and build a reputation of country gentlemen. Robinson worked very hard at building his reputation. If only he worked that hard to make an honest living. He was obviously intelligent. During this time, he also bought a new Fiat and put vanity plates on it that said referee. This was because he was the president of the group of volleyball officials And he assigned referees for games at the schools in the area he was actually considered to be a good official himself he became the self-appointed pleasant farms caretaker cleaning the trails and ponds he also bought horses so he could join the equine groups no one knew about his past or his past trouble with the law they just thought he was a great guy and a great dad he did a great job of fooling everyone well almost everyone There were some people that described him as condescending and others who said they heard him screaming at his family and barking orders at his wife and kids. Some even say that Robinson beat his wife. Folks also noticed that he did not provide adequate food for his horses and they were on the verge of starvation. Based on the book Anyone You Want Me To Be, while living at Pleasant Valley Farms, Robinson began a new startup company called HydroGrow. Hydro Grow was based on hydroponics and growing vegetables indoors. He even created a 64-page booklet titled Fun with Home Hobby Hydroponics. In this book, he promoted his company with the slogan, If it grows, it grows better hydroponically. Robinson really went all out with this company, and it actually sounded like it could be a great business venture. He had his kids helping with advertising, he had t-shirts made, and he claimed to be, quote, one of America's hydroponics pioneers, sought-after lecturer, consultant, and author." Robinson began to lure in new investors. At least one unfortunate family invested $25,000 into HydroGrow. A man who was supposedly a friend was buried under medical bills from his wife's cancer treatment. He thought this investment would help him grow his money and help him pay off some of the medical bills which had accumulated. Instead, he lost every single penny he invested. It is believed that there were more investors just like this man with similar losses. In 1977, at the age of 33, Robinson shows no signs of slowing down his criminal activities. Instead, he is getting even bolder he managed to weasel his way onto the board of directors for a local handicapped service organization. Once on board, he immediately ordered stationery and began forging letters. He forged letters from the organization's executive director to the Kansas City mayor and from the mayor to other civic leaders. Robinson actually invites these people to an awards luncheon for Man of the Year. And, surprise! Surprise! The winner is John Edward Robinson. This whole event is just one big phony scam set up by Robinson. When the people whose names had been forged read about this event in the paper, they were outraged and exposed Robinson as a fraud. By the late 1970s, Nancy, Robinson's wife, is actually starting to realize her husband has no intention of ending his criminal career or is cheating on her. Although she threatens to end the marriage and even kicks him out, it doesn't last. The kids don't understand. They just want their father back. Nancy gives in, lets him back in the house. She has no real idea who she's married to. She actually followed him around for a while trying to figure out what he was doing and who he was seeing, but it never came to anything. She certainly had no idea that Robinson was becoming more and more interested in the subculture of sadomasochistic sex. In March 1979, Robinson was 36 years old and finally discharged from federal probation with an excellent report from his probation officer. Obviously, his probation officer had no clue who John Robinson was either or what he was capable of. He got a job at a place called Guy's Foods. They manufactured potato chips and other foods. He was their employee relationship manager and they liked the way he handled people. He seemed to be good at this position and might have made a clean start of it if that was what he wanted, but it wasn't. Instead, he went on to have an affair with one of the secretaries who also helped him to embezzle thousands by inventing fake employees and cashing their checks. He also wrote company checks which he deposited into an account that looked like a guy's corporate account. Within a few months, Robinson managed to steal tens of thousands of dollars. Robinson used some of the money he stole to rent an apartment. It was here that he would bring his female co-workers for sex. His plans were going well except for one little glitch. The secretary who was helping him to steal was falling in love with him. She gave him an ultimatum saying he needed to leave his wife and marry her or she was going to turn him into the police. When Robinson didn't give in to her demands, she kept her word and went to the police. Robinson is now 37 years old. It's December 30th, 1980, and one year after being hired by Guy's Foods, he is fired from Guy's Foods. Robinson was charged with felony theft, submitting false vouchers and forged checks. Guy's also sued him in civil court, demanding that he repay what he had stolen. The suit was eventually settled with Robinson agreeing to pay $50,000. He ended up paying back $41,000 in restitution over a four-year period. In his criminal trial, he pleaded guilty and could have faced up to seven years in prison. Instead, he was given 60 days in the county jail starting May 1982 and five years probation. By now, his wife Nancy knows for sure that her husband is a career criminal and that he is cheating on her. Her friends tried to convince her to leave him, but Nancy wanted to try marriage counseling first. They actually did attend counseling and they did end up staying together. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And that is exactly what Robinson did. In the summer of 1982, at the age of 38, he started a new company called Equa Plus. This was another consulting firm and the purpose of the company was to bring new products to market he accepted a contract with a local business Backcare systems to create a marketing plan for them robinson immediately began sending them invoices that were extremely high unlike so many of his previous victims bat system noticed right away that his behavior was very suspicious they collected as much information as they could and went to the district attorney's office while Robinson is busy getting Equaplus off the ground, he is also busy sexually propositioning the wives of many of his neighbors. In fact, he got into a physical fight with one of the husbands of a woman he came onto. It was also at this time that things are about to change in a big way. Robinson is introduced to the world of computers. In the early 80s, personal computers are still uncommon, and to a con man like Robinson, this is like striking gold. The possibilities are endless. In the fall of 1992, Robinson opens yet another consulting firm. This one is called Equa 2. He takes on a partner in crime, Irv Blatner. In May 1984, Irv Blatner meets a woman who is looking to get a divorce. He introduces her to Robinson who poses as an attorney. He promises to help her get a divorce if she paid him $200 Anne gave him her car, marriage license, and birth certificate. She never got her divorce. She complained to law enforcement, but nothing was ever resolved. Things were beginning to change, and Equitu was not the only iron in the fire for Robinson. He had leased a duplex and turned it into a brothel. Then, he hired an experienced prostitute named Linda Stevens Jones to manage the business and find other girls to work there. This brothel specialized in rough S&M sex. It was said if you were into rough sex or sadomasochistic practices, this was the place to go. Robinson was actually engaging in these practices for years prior to opening his brothel. During this time, Robinson had also become a leading member in the secret SM cult called the International Council of Masters. He was the cult's slave master, and it was his job to bring victims to the meetings for beatings, torture, or rape. Based on the book, Anyone You Want Me To Be? Quote, the International Council of Masters is said to have members all over the world. It was founded in London in 1921. Apparently, like-minded men wanted to be able to indulge their deepest, darkest fantasies. Dark as in the Marquis de Sade, dark. That is scary. I may do an episode on the Marquis de Sade because it is about as dark as it gets. The members of this cult all want to be dominants or masters to submissive women or slaves. Originally, there was a communal dungeon where the members were free to express themselves in whatever devious manner they chose. The masters wore purple hooded robes. Slaves wore white robes and metal handcuffs attached to chains. They were trained to do whatever was demanded of them. The masters would untie the slaves' robes in front of a group and made the woman stand naked before everyone. The women were often traded back and forth among the men. He would make them wear leashes and other paraphernalia and do exactly as they were told. If they didn't, the consequences were often violent. The men joined the cult voluntarily. The same cannot always be said of the women. When the cult finally came to America, Robinson learned about them and signed up. It was his job to bring in new slaves and he was so successful at this that he rose in the ranks to become a senior member. No one knows how many women he brought to this group." In 1984, Robinson hired a 19-year-old woman named Paula Godfrey to work at Equitou as a sales representative. Paula graduated from high school as an honor student. She was a very talented figure skater. She was in the pep club and she contributed to a literary magazine called mind burst she was trying to get a job with disney world on ice show but she got sick and things didn't work out so she started to look for another job and she was eventually hired by robinson he told her that she along with a few other women would be trained in a clerical skills program in san antonio all expenses would be paid this would be awesome just what she needed a good solid company that wanted to invest in their employees. So she picked a date for the trip to Texas and Robinson came to her house to pick her up. Her dad waited anxiously by the phone, waiting for an update from his daughter. Naturally, he wanted to know she had arrived safely. The call never came. Her dad was so upset that he actually flew to San Antonio to look for Paula. He found out that she had never checked into the hotel she said she would be staying at he went looking for Robinson. He found him at the office of Equitou and demanded to know where his daughter was. Robinson didn't give him any useful information, and Mr. Godfrey stated that if he didn't hear from his daughter in the next couple of days, there would be serious trouble. Almost immediately, Paula's dad received a letter in the mail. It looked as though it was sent from Paula, and it said that she was okay. It also said that she was grateful to Robinson for his help. But... What wasn't right was the fact that the letter also stated that she didn't want to see her family. Why? She didn't have any problems with her family. It also contained swearing, which was out of character for Paula. In fact, nothing about this letter rang true for her dad. Not the content, not the swearing, not the signature, nothing. Paula's dad went to the police and reported her missing. The police contacted Robinson, but he just blew it off saying he didn't know anything about the young woman or her disappearance. When her parents gave the police the letter they received, they believed the letter was legit and closed the missing person investigation. They stated that since Paula was an adult and there was no evidence of foul play, there was nothing more they could do. On March 19, 1985, Irv Blatner, an ex-con and Robinson's Equitou partner, decided to cooperate with the Secret Service and signed a statement implicating John Robinson in a number of illegal financial activities to get him arrested for probation violations. Robinson had been moving back and forth between the state lines of Kansas and Missouri, making it difficult for law enforcement. This was one of the reasons they notified the FBI, and because Robinson was involved in forging signatures on government checks, the Secret Service was pulled in. On March 21, 1985, at the age of 42, Robinson was arrested at the office of his probation officer, Stephen Hames. He posted a $50,000 bond and was back out on the street in hours. To this day, Paula's body has never been found, but she is definitely believed to be Robinson's first murder victim. Some have speculated that she may have ended up as a slave in the International Council of Masters. With Paula Godfrey, the killings have begun. Robinson is entering a new phase in his criminal career. Back in 1982, Robinson was introduced to personal computers. It was also during this time that the internet was created. Robinson, with a computer and access to the internet, opens up a whole new arena for him to find victims. In fact, John Edward Robinson is considered to be the first known person to use the internet to find his murder victims. Robinson stays very busy during this time period. After all, he has a wife and four children to support. He has to keep up appearances in his community by volunteering at the school and church. He was also heavily involved in the International Council of Masters and running a brothel out of his duplex. He excelled at keeping these areas of his life in their own separate compartments. It seemed as if he was living multiple lives and doing an excellent job of fooling others. He was a real chameleon. It's hard to believe that Robinson was convicted on six separate occasions on charges of theft and fraud over a 20-year period between 1964 and 1984, and barely spent more than 60 days in jail. He committed other crimes as well, but was not caught or arrested Robinson did have one probation officer named Stephen Hames, who knew in his gut and based on his knowledge of Robinson's track record and crimes, that Robinson was someone to fear. And he did suspect that he had something to do with Paula Godfrey's disappearance. He would continue to monitor Robinson over time. After murdering Paula Godfrey, Robinson began his next venture. This was a philanthropic organization named Kansas City Outreach. Robinson claimed that his outreach program would provide job training and housing and other assistance to unwed mothers. The women would live in a duplex and receive $800 a month plus expenses. Robinson made some very bold claims. He claimed to be on the board of a local bank and to be a member of a prominent church in the area. He also claimed that Xerox and IBM would be funding this group. Ann Smith was a woman who worked at a place called Birthright, which was a local nonprofit for unwed mothers. He contacted Birthright and another agency called the Truman Medical Center, asking them to refer potential candidates to him. When one of these agencies contacted Robinson with a candidate, he would always ask if the mother was black or white. This set off alarm bells for Ms. Smith. She noted that most of the young mothers they help are Black, and Robinson never offered to help a single one. It was well known in the social services circle that white babies bring a higher price in the Black market adoption trade. Ms. Smith from Birthright was very suspicious of Robinson and contacted Stephen Hames, Robinson's probation officer, and shared her concerns. I was curious how Ms. Smith knew about Hames, but I couldn't find any information to clarify. Anyway, as a result, Hames put in many, many more hours of research, sifting through Robinson's extensive criminal record, trying to learn as much as he could about the man. Unfortunately, in the meantime, the Truman Medical Center referred 19-year-old Lisa Stasi. She had entered a battered women's shelter called Hope House, It was while she was staying here that she was contacted by a social worker and told that a very kind, generous man from Kansas wanted to help her and her five-month-old daughter, Tiffany. Lisa was ecstatic, as you can imagine. The kind and generous man was Robinson. He was now 41 years old. Robinson met with Lisa in early 1985 and made all kinds of promises. And he introduced himself as John Osborne not Robinson. He promised to get her a job as a silkscreen printer, set her up with babysitting, and provide her with an apartment. He explained that he was a very successful businessman who wanted to give back to his community, and that was why he started the Kansas City Outreach Program. On January 8, 1985, Lisa and her baby were checked into the Overland Park Roadway Inn by John Osborne. He paid for the room with a credit card issued to Equitou, the consulting company set up by Robinson earlier. While she was staying at the Roadway Inn, he explained that he was finalizing her travel plans. He had promised that he would take her to enroll in a training program in Chicago. He had her sign four pieces of blank stationery and give him the names and contact information for her relatives. He stated that he needed these so that he could keep her family informed of her progress over time. Lisa made a visit to her sister-in-law, Kathy Klingensmith, while she was staying at the Roadway Inn. She told Kathy about the man who was helping her out. Kathy wasn't sure what to make of this news or this man. Lisa did express some misgivings, and this caused Kathy to become a little scared. Maybe this was all too good to be true. Robinson called Lisa at the Roadway Inn, but found out she wasn't in her room. He began to track her down using the contact information she had given him earlier, And he came to get her at her sister-in-law's house. He was obviously very worried she might try and leave him. A major snowstorm hit the area, but he drove out to Kathy's place anyway. When he got there, he didn't park in front of her house. Instead, he parked a block down the street. It seems he didn't want his car to be seen. He stepped inside Kathy's house and collected Lisa and Tiffany without uttering a single word to Kathy. Kathy describes him as 5 feet 9 inches and 200 pounds with a menacing look. Kathy said that she tried to talk Lisa out of going with him, but he was just too insistent and forceful. She said his body looked round and soft, but there was nothing soft about his manner or his glare. After Lisa left, Kathy immediately called her husband and told him she just knew something was very wrong and they needed to do something quick. After Lisa got back to the hotel, she tried to call Kathy, but there was no answer. Next, she called her mother-in-law, Betty Stazzy. As they were talking, Lisa cried and told Betty that she'd been forced to sign four pieces of paper or she would lose Tiffany. She'd been led to believe that Betty was the person who wanted her to do this and to separate her from her daughter. Betty pleaded with her not to sign anything else and tried to reassure her that she had nothing to do with any of these arrangements or with John Osborne. Then Lisa abruptly stated that she had to go, here they are, and she hung up. Betty stated that that phrase scared her. She could hear fear in Lisa's voice and the term they meant there was more than one person there. The next day, Lisa's sister-in-law, Kathy Smith, contacted the Overland Park Police Department as well as the FBI. When law enforcement went to the roadway Inn, Lisa had already checked out, and this is where they found out her bill was paid by John Robinson of Equitou. Kathy's husband went to the Equitou office and found Robinson there. At first, Robinson played dumb. Then he got outraged and kicked David out. Not long after this incident, David and Kathy received a phone call from a Father Martin, telling them that Lisa and Tiffany are just fine. When David followed up, he found out there was no Father Martin. After Lisa checked out of the roadway Inn, she was never seen or heard from again. As of April, 2021, Lisa Stasi has never been found, but Robinson was still convicted of her murder. In a bizarre turn of events, her daughter, Tiffany Stasi, was eventually found. Authorities actually located Tiffany Living with Robinson's brother in Hammond, Indiana. Robinson arranged everything and even forged all the necessary legal documents. His brother had no idea this was not a legal adoption. They knew nothing of Lisa. Tiffany was adopted by Robinson's brother when she was only five months old. When authorities found her, she was a senior in high school and was living a very normal life. She has since been told about her mom and her biological father. While Robinson is on the hunt for his next victim, law enforcement is on a hunt of their own. The local police, Secret Service, and the FBI are investigating both Robinson and his former partner in crime, Irv Blattner, for forging signatures on government checks along with several other fraudulent money-making scams. Despite all this attention from law enforcement, they still couldn't pin him down and Robinson just kept on business as usual. One lead they received came from a woman named Cora Holmes. She met him through a stripper friend of hers. Cora was looking for work and Robinson hired her to lie to law enforcement, telling them that Lisa Stasi had spent the night at her house and had made plans to go to Arkansas. At this time, law enforcement also found the woman who Robinson claimed had babysat for Lisa long after she had gone missing. This made it look as though Lisa and Tiffany were still alive and together. This woman claimed that she lied because she owed Robinson $900 and had posed nude for him in the past. She was afraid that Robinson would show her nude pictures and to stop him from doing this, she agreed to lie for him. Law enforcement is really stepping up their investigation against Robinson. They actually had an undercover agent meet with him. The agent was posing as a prostitute and made plans to have lunch with Robinson and discuss possible employment. The agent was set up with a wire so she could record their conversation. Over lunch, Robinson told her that he ran a call girl business. He claimed that his customers were professional men, including doctors, lawyers, and judges. If she were willing to fly to Dallas or Denver for a weekend, She could earn up to $3,000, but there were conditions. In addition to having sex with men, she would also be required to engage in sadomasochistic practices. He explained that there is a submissive partner and a dominant partner, and there would be bondage and the infliction of pain. He explained that she may be spanked, tied up, or whipped. The agent led Robinson to believe she was interested in the job, but once she got back to the office, her superiors decided it was too dangerous to go through with. Getting enough evidence to arrest Robinson was proving to be very difficult for law enforcement. They did finally get Irv Blatner, Robinson's former partner, to sign a statement regarding the financial crimes Robinson was connected to. The day after Blatner signed the statement, Robinson went to meet with his probation officer, At this meeting, Robinson was arrested for parole violation. Within hours of being booked into the Clay County Jail, he posted a $50,000 bond and walked right back out. This guy is like Teflon. As you can see, Robinson is a very busy man, but he still makes time for a girlfriend. 21-year-old Teresa Williams, a transplant from Boise, Idaho to Kansas City Robinson and Teresa met at a local McDonald's where he started up a conversation with her. He explained to her that he could help her improve her situation. Teresa believed him and the next thing you know, she has moved into the duplex and is working as a prostitute. In exchange, Robinson is paying her bills and providing her with pot to smoke. She was somewhat uncomfortable with the fact that he carried a gun, liked to take nude pictures of her and enjoyed sexual violence too much for her taste. On one particular night, on April 30th, 1985, Robinson paid Teresa $1,200 and had her put on a sexy dress. She was instructed to wait near a local park for a limousine to pick her up. She did as she was told, and when the car came, she was driven to a mansion. At the mansion, she was met by a gray-haired man, about 60 years old, who referred to himself as the Judge. He took her to his basement where he had built a dungeon designed specifically for sadomasochism and sexual torture. She was stripped naked and placed on a rack that looked medieval. Teresa had dabbled in the world of S&M, but this was way out of her league. She was terrified and the man began to tighten the rack. Eventually, the pain became too much and she screamed and begged to be released. Finally, after much more tightening, screaming, and begging, the judge let her go. He was pissed that he didn't get what he paid for, and Robinson was pissed at Teresa for not doing what she was supposed to, and made her return the $1,200. The next encounter between Teresa and Robinson is pretty terrifying. He let himself into the apartment she was staying in, grabbed her by the hair, and threw her over his knee. He proceeded to spank her very, very hard, telling her that she needed to be punished. Then he threw her onto the floor, stood over her, and pointed his gun at her. She began to scream and plead for her life. He told her to shut up or he would shoot her in the head. He actually pulled the trigger since there was no bullet in the chamber. It just clicked. Then he took the gun and inserted it into her vagina while she totally freaked out, yelling and pleading for her life. Fortunately, he did not pull the trigger, but instead let her go. While Robinson is violating parole, running a brothel, and supporting a girlfriend, he is still playing the family man, a pillar in the community's First Presbyterian Church and a soccer referee. People actually thought he was a good neighbor, good father, and good family provider. And that will do it for part one. I hope to see you back here on Crime Happens for part two, the exciting conclusion. In part two, we will hear details surrounding his remaining six murders and his eventual capture.